Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning, everybody. By the way, I know that there are some guys that want to exchange recipes. If you've got a great chili recipe, come let me know. And there's probably some ladies that want to drive bulldozers. So, you know, we, could, we can do it all. We can make it all work, all figured out. But either way, uh, if you have a chance to go up and spend a weekend at Flaming Pine, you should, uh, you should do that. It's, it's going to be cold. <laughs> so have fun. Um, we are back in our series called Greatest Hits, and what we're doing here is we're exploring, if you heard Jesus teach, we're exploring what he would have taught. Like if you heard him uh, gather a crowd of people and start to explain to the people the way the world really was, these are the things that you would have taught, so you would have heard. So we're in, in part four of this series, it's going to be six uh, weeks long or six sermons long, and we're in part four already. There's just 29 verses to this teaching. It's, it's nothing, really. I mean, it's just, it could, it could be a tweet. I mean, there's just not a, a ton there, but the, the teaching has been changing people's lives for thousands of years. It's so deep. It's so resonant. It's made a tremendous difference. It's about the way the world, the world really works. So week one, we just talked about simply our ideas of, of blessing, of a good life. They're, they're really backwards. We get, we get so turned around and Jesus came and straightened us out and tried to say really what is blessed and really what is cursed is, is totally different than the way we think about it. Uh, we talked about how loving one's enemies has redemptive power. We want to hate our enemies. We're in a world that teaches one another to hate their enemy and the only way to redemption, the only way to healing is to love one's enemy. It's the only way to do it. And then uh, the third sermon, we talked about how other people's sin is not a good enough reason to disregard them, just like our sin wasn't a good enough reason for God to disregard us. So today we're in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 43. This is what Eric read, no good tree bears bad fruit, uh, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, you read that, and at first it seems obvious. I'm not much of a gardener. I don't know a lot about that, but it seems obvious. You have a good tree uh, or good fruit, you have a good tree. If you are a, a, a person who does good things, it probably means you're a good person. You've probably heard of a guy named John Christ. He's a comedian. Uh, he does a lot of what he does around uh, Christian ideas, church-related stuff. And I heard him talking about this, and I, I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was particularly, uh, well, funny. But he explains that some, sometimes the farming metaphors go right over our heads. Like, we think we get it, but they kind of go right over our heads, and we don't really relate. So we're going to watch this uh, real quick. He talks about this passage. <laughs> That's why, man, I think men have a hard time becoming a Christian. I really do, because we read the Bible now. Like this guy, read the Bible, you get, because everything, you know, everything in the Bible is about like farming. Like Jesus was always talking about parables, farming, agriculture. You were like, yeah. If I was in the Bible times, I would be asking questions. <laughs> it was like Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was like, you need faith the size of a mustard seed. I'd be like, yo, how big is that? I'm not a farmer. I didn't even know it was a seed. I didn't. I thought it came in a bottle. I didn't even know it had a seed. I'm not. <laughs> I was reading the fruits of the spirit the other day. It said, can you get grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? I was like, 
Oh. <laughs> you got me on this one, Jesus. This is a riddle. I don't know. I uh, encourage you to watch the, the whole thing. But that's a good point. Like, when we read that, we're like, yeah, good trees bring good fruit. But do we really know that? You have no idea. You went into the grocery store and picked an apple, and you're like, you have no idea what kind of tree it came from. You don't know what to look for. You're just like, is this apple gross and rotten? Or, you know, but you don't, we, we, don't, we don't think that way. And so I don't know that these metaphors land quite as solidly as they might. Now, I get it. The passage seems straightforward. It makes sense, right? My next-door neighbor doesn't recycle, therefore they're bad, right? Bad act, bad person. My grandmother always made me chicken noodle soup when I was sick. Uh, good act, therefore she's a good person. It just seems super straightforward. We don't have to think about it uh, too much. And, and we've seen this. You have seen people who are just kind-hearted and good, and they just elevate. There's like this gravitational pull of goodness around them, and they just elevate everybody. And you've seen people that are just, it's like drama and divisiveness, and you feel like you've got a detox after you've spent time with them. Just dark clouds loom wherever they go. Now, this is going to seem elementary, uh, maybe even silly, but I want you to note the emphasis in this passage. The emphasis is that the character of a person is recognized by what they produce. And I think we can agree with that. The character of a person is recognized by what they produce produce the character. The emphasis is on revealing the character, not the fruit. Maya Angelou said something similar. Uh, You've probably heard this quote, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. In other words, you've probably been in this dynamic. There's maybe a relationship that you really want to work, and you're tempted to overlook serious shortcomings and red flags. And so if someone says, I'm reliable, but what they show you is a lack of reliability, believe them. Believe what they show you. Believe what the character produces. If someone says, I don't want to cause problems, and they do nothing but cause problems, believe them. Believe the character. Believe who they are revealing themselves to be. Now, so this all seems obvious enough, right? This is This is just humanity, behavior, uh, relationship, 101 stuff. Why is Jesus addressing this? Have you ever uh, tracked your spending habits Uh, or maybe counted calories? I'm no nutritionist. I don't know if that's good to do or not. But I have never once, when I've thought, you know, I really got to get control of my spending, I really got to get control of my calorie intake, never once have I done that and not been surprised by the difference between what I thought I was doing, what I thought I was spending, what I thought I was eating, and what I was actually spending, what I was actually eating. You know what I'm talking about? It's always a little bit of shock. And you're like, I have been with me everywhere I've gone. I have eaten everything. How did I not know this? How did I assume I was doing so much better than I really am? And it's never, I'm rarely ever surprised in a positive way. It's always a negative way. I mean, I was, I spent all that money. How did I not know I was doing that thing? Now, the the deal is, is it's not just money. And this is going to cause some arguments on the way home if you're married. (laughs) In a national survey, they accessed people's driving records and then they asked them, are you a good driver? Now, how many, uh, how many, what percentage of people do you think said they were below average drivers? Any, any percentage guesses? Oh, so zero, you would guess. It's barely above zero. It's 1%. 1% said, yeah, don't let me behind the wheel of a car. I'm really bad. I just, I should, we can't wait for Google to invent the, uh, make, mass produce the driverless car. 
Uh, what percent thought that they were average drivers? One percent. <laughs> All right, a little better. Humanity's doing a little better than you thought. Six percent thought that they were average drivers. Six percent was like, yeah, I'm okay. I don't know better than anybody else. So what does that mean? What percent thought that they were better than average? Yes, very good. And also good at math. 93% thought that they were better than average. And this is what kills me. In fact, in any sort of traffic altercation, if, some, if one person turns in front of another person, both drivers and both cars think that the other person's an idiot, no matter what happens, right? But this is what kills me. 44% of people still thought that they were above average while they were texting, still thought they were better than the average driver. And that's the one that's going to cause a little argument on the way home because you've been trying to tell that to your spouse and they're not listening and now you've got data to back it up. Now, the craziest thing about all this is because they had access to people's driving records, the individual driving record had no impact on their self-assessment. The amount of accidents they had been in, the amount of tickets they had, been, they had gotten. And that's why it's such an argument. When you try to tell somebody that you're in the car that you deeply love and you, both want, you want you both to survive and you tell them, hey, you should not text. And they're like, no, I'm a good driver. And you're like, well, you're really not. Well, they still think they're a good driver even while they're texting. Data says, doesn't matter how many accidents they've been, doesn't matter how many tickets they've got. Now, if you do, there, there's this other study that did a meta-analysis of, of, of a variety of studies about how people uh, self-perceive, how people self-perceive, and not surprisingly, people think that they're above average at most things. We think we're above average at most things. Uh, social psychologists call this the illusory, illusory superiority uh, bias. Now, some of you think that that's not true because you know there are things that you're not good at. Some of you think or you know, I'm not a good cook, I can't bowl, I can't sing. However, if you think those kinds of things, if you're like, well, I can think of several things I'm not very good at, all those things have one thing in common. There is empirical data to back up your claim. And you have probably painfully experienced the stark collapsing of what you thought and what you did because you sang and somebody nearby you said, please never do that again. <laughs> and it hurt you so deeply that years later, you still remember that and you know that you can't sing. Or maybe you cooked and a few family members got food poisoning. Man, you send a couple people to the ER and everybody gets all wound up. No one lets you forget it. I asked a uh, group of teenagers when I was teaching up at Flaming Pine, actually, at, uh, at teen camp. I guess this was at youth camp that Steve directs. And I was, I was teaching. These are the oldest boys that I was teaching. And I just, I don't remember even the context because this, is, this one uh, answer this kid gave me surprised me so much. I've thought about it so many times since. I asked them, what kinds of things were they good at? And I was just encouraging a little conversation, a little discussion. And this one boy raised his hand and I said, yes, uh, what, what are you good at? And he said, I'm really good at soccer. And I was like, oh, that's surprising. And, and so I was going to follow up and I was, I was going to say, oh, so you play soccer? And he, he said, no. And I said, you've never played soccer? And he said, no, I've never played soccer. But if I did, I know I'd be really good at it. And I think about that all the time. If you, were, if you were to plot this out on a data point, there was no data on his ability to play soccer, but his self-confidence was through the roof. 
And I think that's a lot of people in these areas where we're just not really, we don't have any, anything hard to, uh, to, to, to measure ourselves against. Now imagine if we had moral data. It's not counting calories. It's not uh, tracking or spending. We have moral data on the type of character that we have. So let's say that I'm an, I'm an honest person. Well, the, the data actually says you told 254 outright lies. 87 of them were to your spouse. 124 were to your boss. You weren't really sick. You were really, you hadn't got that work done, even though you said you did. You hadn't sent that email. 37 of those lies were to your children. If you had actual data, because remember, we think one thing about ourselves, but there is a reality that we're not aware of that is generally true. Or how about anger? You may think, well, you know, I stay pretty calm. I, I don't get too upset. I'm, I just let things roll off my back. Well, data says... Your resting heart rate is in the constantly annoyed stage. <laughs> and every time you turn on the TV, the heart rate goes up. Watching the news. Some of you think, I'm really self-aware. I get myself. I know myself. And the data says, well, <laughs> ask your spouse how well you know yourself. Because that's what the cause, causes arguments. When it comes to character, when it comes to people's character, there is a significant gap between how good people think they are and how good they actually are, character-wise, how good people think they are and how good they actually are. This is so consistent and so reliable that you could call this a law. You could say there is a law that people will always have a gap between how good they think they are and how, and how they actually are. And, and I know in the room, we're like, yeah, that's true. It's other people are so unself-aware. Other people, they claim to be good trees, using the vernacular of Jesus, but they're producing bad fruit. Now, let's back up just, just a little bit from the passage that Jesus is talking about here, and let's jump back to verse 41, Luke 6, 41, and he says this. Luke 6, 41, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? But you don't, you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye and you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? And then he says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother, brother's eye. Now his audience, Jesus' audience is hearing this. And I'm guessing because they're like most of us, most audiences, and we would do the same thing. We would hear Jesus say that, and we would say, plank? <laughs> what plank? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. I don't have a plank in my eye. I don't have any major problems I got to deal with. Now, that other person, certainly, they've got some stuff they could fix, but I don't have anything. What are you talking about? And then it seems as if Jesus is saying, oh, what's that? You don't, you don't think you have a plank? Well, um, let me break it down just a little bit more for you. Look at verse 43. Uh, he says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. And people are like, okay, you know how good fruit comes from healthy trees. And I know most of us are like, well, maybe, I guess it's, it's fine. And Jesus, you know how rotten, shriveled fruit means something that's wrong with the tree? Yeah, people get it. And Jesus is saying, well, your moral, when your moral character is not good, what does that mean? And they say, the audience listening to Jesus says, I'm still not quite tracking with you, Jesus. And then he says in verse 44, each tree is recognized by the fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. You, you, you understand that, right? Yeah, his audience. And they're like, sure, yeah. But, and then Jesus is saying, well, if people aren't getting figs from you, 
What does that mean about the kind of tree you are? Jesus, I, it sounds suspiciously like you're saying we are bad trees. That can't be right, can it? That can't be what you're saying. And I think realization begins to dawn. And he's saying you can tell what's inside the internal workings of a person's heart by what they produce. And then he says something incredibly hard, incredibly difficult. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But what, what he's trying to get us to understand is there is a significant gap between how good we think we are, not just them, but how good we think we are and how good we actually are. And then he says, this is how you recognize that in, in a way that's, that's more revealing than anything else. He says, verse 45, for, out, uh, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I'm a couple slides ahead if you want to move forward. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When you get jostled around by life, what comes out? What comes out? When things are tricky and difficult and they're not going your way, what is it that comes out? Is it, is it peace and joy and contentment? Probably not. Is it anger? and fear, and worry, and hate, and blame? For a lot of us, it is. And Jesus is saying that reveals the internal workings of the heart. And this is why words can be so particularly devastating. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but they can be so devastating because we know that words have a way of revealing something deep and true that people often try to suppress and hide. And when they say that, we know that that's probably something real. It's, that's something that they really believe, they really think. It's like the sticks and stones thing, right? Words will never hurt me. No, Solomon said in Proverbs that words have the power of life and death. The power of life and death. So here's a, here's a tough question for us. Would you rather believe the happy lie about yourself or to know the painful truth? Would you rather believe a happy lie or know the painful truth. This is hard. Would you rather step on the scale or see yourself in a funhouse mirror that makes you look a little thinner than you really are? It's kind of like um, you, maybe you've had something like this happen. Uh, you're running a bunch of errands around town. You're interacting with a bunch of people. You've had lots of conversations. You ran into people that you knew uh, from school or work at the grocery store. You were talking right and left, and you've started to notice you're getting a little attention. You, people, even strangers, are kind of looking at you, and you're thinking, well, maybe maybe I just picked the right outfit today. Maybe my hair looks good today. You know, Maybe, uh, maybe my, my shirt goes with my eyes. Maybe, maybe I'm exuding self-confidence. Like Maybe, maybe uh, some something's going right today because I'm getting a lot of attention from, from people and I've interacted with a lot of folks today and this is, I feel pretty good. There's a little spring in your step and then you see yourself in a mirror and there's a big chunk of food in your teeth or you realize that your zipper's unzipped or that you had dirt smudged on your face and you've been walking around interpreting the attention as data that maybe things were good and it was actually data that maybe things weren't so hot. Would you rather continue to believe the happy lie or know the truth? It's not an easy question. It's not an easy question to, to wrestle with. I mean, it feels better. It feels better to believe the lie. Our brains fight to believe the lie about ourselves. In fact, Paul wrote a, a, an entire letter to a church 
trying to help them, trying to hold up a mirror and help them understand the reality of their situation. And, and, and he says some really hard things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, brothers and sisters, listen. This is right at the beginning of the letter. This is right after like, hey guys, how are you doing? This is Paul. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. He's talking about class there. You guys didn't have anything to offer the world. Remember that. And now you're acting like you're something. But remember who you really are. That's harsh. Paul, why would you say that? That doesn't sound very nice. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul goes on to say, brothers and sisters, I can't even address you as spiritual. I can't, I mean, I can't even talk. You're just, you're just babies. I've got to break it down so basic for you. Paul, come on. That's not how you build people up. Or how about 4.14? I'm, listen, guys, I promise I'm not writing this to shame you. Why does he have to say that? Because everything he's writing sounds shameful. I'm writing this to warn you. And then he goes through the rest of the letter, line by line. Just imagine a moral Excel spreadsheet of all their failures, their collective failures as a church. Chapter after chapter of you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. It's brutal. And it's nice to be able to read from a distance because we're like, whew, we're not as bad as that church. But what is Paul trying to accomplish by exposing them to the failures in their own lives? Why would Paul do this? Why would Jesus say, hey, Audience, the stuff that you say, the things that you do, if they're not good things, that means that the tree is not good. The character is not good. Why would they do that? I think, I think there's a fairly strong trend in our culture, and culture is a tricky word to use because it's too monolithic, but in our society to claim that it's moral to let people believe a lie about themselves. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we walk around and say mean, terrible things and act like, well, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to be like Paul. But it's moral. It's better to let people, to affirm a lie that they believe about themselves. It's better. I think there's a trend in that. And that, you know, that's up for debate and argument. But I think, I think we could safely say that that's what we're seeing in our society right now, that it wouldn't be good, that Jesus coming along and saying, hey, your words reveal something about your heart, wouldn't be well accepted in, 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 by modern moral standards. For Paul to say, listen, you guys are failing at every turn. That wouldn't be accepted by modern moral standards. But being blind to the reality of what's truly going on inside our hearts, inside our lives, being blind is deadly. It keeps us from being transformed. We'll never actually address the problem if we don't know. I'm good. I don't, I don't need to change. I'm fine. It will allow us to continue to hurt people around us. Uh, and, and it's because a lot of the behaviors we're engaged with are selfish and they cause damage. But if no one's willing to point out like, hey, you're messing up. What you're doing is hurting your family. What you're doing is hurting your career. What you're doing is hurting the people around you. If no one's willing to say that to us, to reveal the truth about us, it allows us to continue to harm other people. It's, it's ultimately selfish. But, but most importantly, and this is so valuable that we understand this, if we continue to believe a beautiful lie a happy lie, it blinds us to the gospel. Jesus came to rescue the lost. And we are desperately trying to convince ourselves and others that we're fine. We're not lost. We don't need rescue. We don't need help. The fundamental claim of the gospel is denied by the fact that we can't address the reality within our own hearts. 
That's the fundamental claim of the gospel. Now, in fact, Paul wrote that an offer of rescue sounds like it's foolishness to the culture at large. Foolish. Now, some of you are going to protest. You're going to be like, okay, wait, Patrick, I hear what you're saying. Theoretically, people who are arrogant, walking around full of themselves, that's true for them. But for me, for me, I have a voice in my head that says things like, you're flawed. You're messed up. You're a loser. You're a failure. And some of you have that voice in your head. You can, your head, you know exactly what that feels like. Every interaction you have, you walk away thinking like, I'm such a dummy. Why did I say that? I can't get it together. I'm terrible. You have that voice in your head. The problem is, is we believe the solution to combat that voice is for people to say, oh no, you're not flawed. You're not, uh, you're not bad. You're not in trouble. There's no problems. You're fine. And I feel like that's the conclusion our society has come to, to try to affirm something that maybe, in fact, they would even say it's cruel and immoral to tell somebody that they're not just fine. You're fine. You're fine. It's fine. But listen, this is so important. It's so important that I'm not getting misunderstood because this is one of those things that I could get angry emails about later. So important. The, the, the message that you're just fine will never stick to someone with that voice going on in their head. It will never, it will never sink deeply. It will never stick. Do you know why? It's because they know that there are things in their life that, is, that are not fine, that are not good, that need to be changed. And if we just try to ignore them and paint over them without fixing them, without transforming them, without changing them, it's never going to happen. That truth of reality is going to continue to seep through. We have messed up. We have. This is the hard part, and, and this is the, the thing I don't want anybody to misunderstand. But we gotta, this is what I think Jesus is saying. This is what I think Paul is saying. And this is true for me. Listen, this is true for me. I am, you are, deeply flawed. I am deeply flawed. <laughs> and, I, and nobody needs to say amen there because I know it's true, right? I am deeply flawed, but the entire message of the gospel is that you are even more deeply loved. That's the whole thing. But if we try to deny that first part and ignore that first part and sweep away that first part, we'll never get to the second part. And it matters so much. That, that God loved us in our deepest, darkest flaws. But if we're like, I'm fine. What are you talking about? Flaws. I don't have any problems. I don't have anything I need to fix. I don't have anything I need to change. Boy, that, that message will never stick. And I think Jesus is saying in a more kind and gracious way than I ever could. It's like, hey, the fruit you produce, that's reflecting something in your heart that's not good. That needs to transform, and that's why I'm here, to transform it. It's truth and it's grace. It's reality and it's love. It's judgment and it's mercy. Check this out. John chapter 8. Don't have it on the screen. So if you want to read it and double-check me, you can't. You know the story. Most of you know the story. A woman, in some circumstance, is caught in the very act of committing adultery. Imagine the horror and the shame of being discovered, and then having to admit, and then being dragged in front of people who are cold and callous and who are using this circumstance to, to just lay weight after weight of shame on you. Just imagine that. And then John chapter 8 says she is dragged in front of Jesus, 
And she's used as a pawn, as a way to get at Jesus, to try to pin Jesus down because they know this Jesus seems to be kind and gracious and loving and he's upsetting the fruit basket when it comes to the old law. Oh, Jesus, this woman, we have evidence. We have the receipts. We have the video. She was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses' law says she must be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And the opportunity they want is they want Jesus to say, oh, leave her alone. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. And then they are going to bring the hammer of the old law down upon him, and they are going to condemn him to death. That's the whole entire point of what they're trying to accomplish here. And I imagine the voices in this poor woman's head are saying, you are flawed. You are a loser. You are messed up. The, the, the voices of condemnation in her own head. And she's certainly hearing the voices of the crowd around her. So Jesus, technically, according to the law, we're supposed to kill her. What do you say? And Jesus responds. And if you've read the story, it's incredible. And it's so counterintuitive. Because think, think what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, what? Don't call her that. What's wrong with you? Honey, sweetie, you're just fine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you're not flawed. You're, you're okay. Ignore them. She doesn't say, it's her life. She can do what she wants. He doesn't say, she's an adult. Come on. He doesn't say, you're just fine the way you are. Jesus affirms the fact that she is flawed. And then he says this amazing thing. You are all flawed. You dragged her before me, but all you were doing is dragging all of your sin before me. He who is without sin cast that first stone. And the text unbelievably says that from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their stones and, and walk away. It's, it's just an incredible story. And then, and then Jesus says in verse, uh, verse 11, he says, hey, where, where, is it, where are all the voices of condemnation? There's one voice that can adequately condemn her from a perspective of perfection, but where are the voices? They've left. Well, I don't condemn you either. And then he says, go and sin no more. Truth and grace, it's, it's beautiful. So I asked this question earlier, would you rather believe the happy lie or know the painful truth? And that's actually not the right question because that's not really the option before us. We can't really believe the happy lie because truth continues to seep into our lives, whether we want it to or not. As much as you try to plug your ears to the moral realities in your own life, truth is going to sink through. As much as you try to scream and shout and say, I don't want to listen to the, the reality going on in my heart, my heart, truth at some point will sink through. And in the quiet moments of your life, you will know what is true. As much as you try to get all the affirmation that you can from people around you, the truth will sink through. It's not actually a, the right question. The right question actually comes from earlier in John. Uh, there's a guy who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he's not got any options not got any options. And Jesus knew he'd been in this condition. And he asks him this question. He, he says, and it seems crazy. He says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And, and I think that's the right question. It seems like a ridiculous question. <laughs> Jesus, I've been paralyzed for 38 years. I don't have any options. Do I want to get well? What kind of dumb question is that? I don't think it is a dumb question. I think a lot of us, myself included, have spent decades trying to suppress the truth that I know about myself, 
trying to ignore it, trying to pretend it's not, trying to distract myself from it, trying to numb it, trying to look the other way, trying to get people to believe something that's not really true about myself, trying to do all those things. And there's times where just the, like, like a trumpet call, the reality of my own sin and my own character, I just can't deny it anymore. And the only option I have is to turn to the one who could condemn me and says, I don't. I offer forgiveness. I offer redemption. Is it a crazy question to ask someone, do you want to get well? I don't know. I've never been a doctor, but I imagine doctors struggle with this all the time. Hey, if you don't stop that habit, you're going to die. Well, doc, you know, do you want to get well? (laughs) Do you really want to get well? I think it's a good question. I think it's the question. And I think some of us have gotten so used to just living with this and trying to deny it and trying to manage the sin in our hearts. I don't know that we can answer that question very honestly anymore. Do we want to get well? There's a song we're going to sing in closing. I'm going to invite the praise team back up. And I want us to reflect on this question uh, as we sing, I guess. But more importantly, just as we live, just are we trying to just manage the sin and get by? Or do we want to be healed, transformed? I mean, what Jesus says is harsh. It's a harsh thing to say, hey, uh, you're is no good. And that means that your tree is no good. That's hard. That's a harsh thing. That's a harsh reality. But there's no other path toward redemption and wholeness and healing unless we go through that sort of personal death, the death of who we thought we were, so that Jesus can recreate us. It's the only way forward. It's the only way forward. Church, I I lived in that for so long and it, it just it disintegrates your spirit it just makes you when jesus says hypocrite he means it because it turns you into two different people to try to manage your sin without being forgiven what we're asking for is that jesus redeem and heal and change and transform us and create us into something new and that's what this song is about that we declare who we who he says we are that we are free because he says we're free. He's the only one with any right to declare that. And he says that. Would you stand and sing as we close out this morning?